Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Welcome back to Value After Hours. I'm your host, Jake Taylor, and I'm joined by my usual suspects, Bill Brewster and Toby Carlisle. What are you guys going to be talking about today for your segments? Go ahead, Toby, you first. I'm talking about Heiko. They've uh, returned 47,500% since uh, Father and Two Sons took it over in 1990. Uh, they did uh, 1,270% over the last decade too, which is 5x the S&P, five times Berkshire. Pretty good effort. Mr. Brewster? I'm going to talk about revisiting a, a previous answer that I had and uh, a potential error of commission that I made. I wish it was uh, more exciting as than as Toby's. That That's quite an intro, Toby. And I'm going to be covering uh, a little bit of nuance between uh, this idea of the stretch rubber band between value and glamour. Uh, and then we also have a couple of good mailbag questions. So we'll be back right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Should we kick off the topics? Sure. Do it. What, uh... Should I take it away with Heiko? Great article. Um, so I, I was sort of talking about a little bit last last week that it's the the father uh, Larry who's eighty one and he was an Arthur Anderson um, accountant and then the two sons Eric and Victor who were in their fifty four fifty one so they approached him they approached Dad in nineteen ninety to say let's do an LBO because that was sort of still still the LBO just after the LBO craze had kind of peaked with the barbarians at the gate. Um, so they find Heiko, which which basically had one product, it was a com- engine combustion chamber, whatever that is, made by Pratt and Whitney, and they'd spun it out. So they got control of it for three million dollars. That was half equity, half debt in 1990. Since then, they're up 47,500 <laughs> percent, and over the last decade, they've done 1,270 percent, which is five x the S and P. And more than 5x Berkshire, just for kind of context, because they've both done around 250%, which is still not bad over that period of time. So now revs 2.1 billion, uh, profit 328 million. They've acquired 78 companies. Um, basically, what they do is they try to buy something that's got very fat margins and uh, and some sort of competitive advantage, and then they just reduce the mar- margins to price them properly. So they sell 100,000 parts. Um, their target, which I found was kind of interesting, they look for $10 million in profit, margins over 
and then they try to buy 80% because they want existing management to remain incentivized. And they've done about nine acquisitions in the last year, which is sort of a little bit more than they have in the past. But they're basically the entire engine of growth of this thing is the ability of these guys to acquire companies that do continue to grow and make money over time. So they are really, really good investors buying cheaply. And that's, that's sort of the analysis. That's as, as simple as it gets. Do you know what their typical uh, multiple is that they pay on that $10 million-ish? Uh, I don't. On the 10, oh, for the acquisition? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's roughly eight times EBITDA. Okay. Is what they target. Uh, interestingly, in their 10K, they have, you know how Bezos has the cash flow statement up front? They have on, I think, pretty prominently on page two, like disciplined acquisition strategy. And they're, you know, some of these businesses, I do think that when you open up the 10K and you just read it, it's like, oh, these guys know what they're doing. They're talking about uh, it all the time. That's right. And like they put it in a way that is easy to digest. And I, you know, I, I read their their fourth quarter earnings call and I read the 10K and I, I read uh, Scuttle Blurb, uh, his write up on Heiko and Transdime. Shout out to Scuttle Blurb. Is People that public? Subscribe. Uh, Transdime? There's the Scuttle Blurb write up oh, on Heiko. Oh, no, it's behind a paywall, but it's worth paying for if, if you're interested in this stuff. He's a solid resource. Um, so anyway, it's just interesting. So there's there was Transdime, who sort of runs like a levered acquisition strategy, and then hikes price, um, and you know maybe goes a little bit more aggressive. And then Scuttleburb Blurba says something along the lines of like, "I love Heiko. You love Heiko. We all love Heiko." You know, it's. <laughs> It's a family-run company. They do things the right way. They're trying to save uh, engine uh, or the airline's cost, right? They're not about pushing price. Um, they actually comment in one of their, uh, I don't know if it was the earnings call or what, but they say something like, PE's got to raise price because they carry so much debt. Our net debt to EBITDA is under a turn. Like, we can play the long game. So... I, I, for the longest time, had closed my eyes to the name because of the multiple, and turns out maybe that was dumb. How do you value it? I think you got to look at it on free cash flow and then sort of embed some acquisitions in there. What uh, sort of yield are you getting at this level, do you know? Well, your entry is only about, uh, what, so it's trading at roughly 35 times free cash flow, so 2.8, 2.9% out of the gate. Oof. That used to be yeah. expensive. <laughs> it did used to be expensive. Yeah, that used to be like a puckering number. Now it just seems like <laughs> that's that's half price space, now. Right? Sixty yeah, times is right. sixty times is the market. Thirty five is like half price. To be fair, uh, something that I've been thinking about, and actually I've got a mailbag question on this a little bit, is what is an asset like this? what's your downside risk really in that multiple because an asset like this in m most realistic scenarios that you can underwrite as today's world exists probably isn't going to trade at less than 20 times free cash flow i'll remind you now, of that sometime of over the next five or ten years <laughs> we'll see was that a bag holder quote right there it could be <laughs> you don't think so 
if your end if your end user is airlines, and I know I own one, so I'm like, I'm they are they are cyclical. They're still cyclical. You don't think that you get you you, you don't think that the suppliers are a little bit cyclical too. Well, they're they're going to be a little bit, but even after nine eleven and in the Great Depression or the Great Recession, average seat miles are uh, flown like our available seat miles actually didn't decline that much. Uh, you know, we'll see what goes on with all this flight shaming and whatnot, but not much is I, my prediction. For yeah, what it's worth. I, I think so too. Um, Nobody flies because they want to. You're basically flying because you got somewhere you have to be and there's no other way to get there. That's fair. Flying's terrible. Yeah. But it's better know. than all the other forms of transportation. Yeah, it's better than, right? it's better than it's driving like, there. That's right. But only just. Uh, where was I going? I'm thinking of flight shaming and how much I'm about to travel over the next three months. I should be shamed. Can't, you just, be can't, you, just buy some, um, can't you just buy some carbon credits and offset it? Just tick the box. No, no. That's somebody else's problem. Anyway, Heiko <laughs> gets to do the replacement part. So as long as there's planes flying in the sky you're not going to be able to defer your maintenance. So I don't, I don't disagree that there will be peaks and troughs, but you know, I, I don't know. I think um, maybe we'll see if it ever trades south of or higher than 5% free cash flow. I'll probably be a buyer. Isn't that kind of the argument though, for those uh, you almost want volatility in the industry because the, when you have a good acquirer that becomes opportunity for them. Right. So it's not you, you worry about them being disrupted, but maybe more so you want that for them to to throw off opportunities for more acquisitions yeah. for the weaker hands to get forced out. Yeah, because they're they're in theory going to get much stronger over that. Right. And if P.E. has too much debt on some of these companies and they have to end up selling, these guys could be the buyer. So a it's good, good cap allocator is 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 an anti-fragile strategy, I think. Yeah. What about the level where they're shopping? The level where they're fishing, $10 million is profit. That's a pretty small company. Yeah, they are tiny. I think that's smart. Like, There's probably not a lot of professional private equity hunting at that level. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but that seems low to me. Yeah, I, I'm not certain about that. I, I agree with you, though, on what $2 billion of sales, your, your acquisition target can't be a massive portion of what your business is if you're hunting in that size. Uh, incentives would matter a ton, right? So you would want to make sure the two sons understand that like the father does. Well, I've been running it since 1990, right? Yeah. It was kind of their idea. Yeah. I got got the sense that there's kind of a Costco element to it as well, where it was like, didn't they do a flat markup of of cost basically for, and then pass that along? Yeah, they were 15%. So they they liked it. So I, I sort of, I didn't read closely enough. It was net margin of 15%. I think Costco targets gross margin of 15%, right? Something like that, 15 or 17. But yeah, it's a fixed amount. What are you netting out between gross and net margin? What are they, what are they including in that to get to the 15? Well, you got what, SG&A. that Heiko? Yeah, yeah, you got SGNA, and there's a little bit of R and D. They're not a particularly heavy R and D organization, from what I can tell. Well, but... I think they're trying to buy it in, aren't they? That's what they're trying yeah. to do. R and D through acquisition, yeah. but they're not stopping it either. They they seem to try to continue on with it once they once they buy it. Yeah, you know, I it's it's an interesting 
like part of my hesitation with paying up for some of these growth companies is where will it be in the future? And I do think Heiko is one of those that um, if you can listen to what they how they talk about their employees, how everybody's invested in success, the secretaries retiring millionaires, um, you know, it's it's not a flashy way to talk. And I almost think it's like a very targeted Berkshire in that if the culture remains, I don't know that you have huge business risk, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I always get a little bit nervous these days when I hear everybody in the firm's buying stock and everybody's doing really well. Just I think <laughs> Enron... Late cycle. Enron just destroyed so many people. Like if you... You, you know, there's... Meb Faber would make this argument where he says, you know, you've already got exposure to that company because you work there. And then to further invest in it, you're doubling up on your exposure. Maybe you should be diversified. Then, you know, if you're inside and you know that it's a really good one, you want to be exposed to it, don't you? That's how you get really wealthy. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, that said, this is not financial advice, and you should talk to a retirement advisor. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I don't. You know, sometimes, sometimes you really do know something, and and having the ability to understand what an, what the culture is from the inside. You know, that said, sometimes I don't even know how much the employees know. I mean, at, at BMO, I I would have misassessed a lot of the stuff that was going on in the yeah. organization. So. I don't know. What do you actually know? I, I've, I've sat in on board meetings and just been kind of astonished at like how little outside directors, how little everybody knows about what's going on. It's just, I, I, I don't think I know anything these days. I'd love to know what it feels like to know something. <laughs> yeah, well, I think knowing that you don't know anything is probably knowing something. That may well, be a little circular, well. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Galaxy mind right there. That's right. Well, there's not false precision in it. Mm, true. The the scuttleblurb thing, real quick about Transdime and Heiko. I like this. What he said. He said both companies are decomposed into small autonomous business units with their own P and Ls, giving rise to a culture of accountability that is often lost down in top-down bureaucratic stru- structures. I, you know, that's that's a pretty. We were talking last week about what might IAC and Heiko and these other companies that you're going to go down, what might that have in common? And that may be part of the clue. Yeah. There's no, they don't have any scale though on like some costs of, I don't know, even like accounting and back end and things like that, or are they fully decentralized? I don't know enough to answer that. I'm sure there's some synergies that go on, right? I mean, with your accounting system or something like that. I kind of hope so, right? Berkshire doesn't do any of that though, do they? They just. No. No, that's why they have a 50,000-page tax return, you know, that's probably. <laughs> oh. All right. right. Next next topic. What do we got? Jake, you want to go? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I thought it would be maybe fun or instructive for us to try to add a little bit of nuance around this stretch stretch rubber band idea between value and growth and, uh, you know, all the value investors have seen this, all these charts that come around about how much growth has outperformed value. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting to see if we could, might be able to back into what are the implicit bets that we're making and are we really even cognizant of them if we are more of a quantitatively driven sort of like we're going to buy the cheapest basket of value right now 
Um, and you know, I, maybe it doesn't apply if you're a you know a Munger three stock portfolio guy, uh, but if you're a more you know fifty plus and you're just trying to approximate values outcomes historically with your current portfolio, what's the implicit bets that you're making? Um, so more specifically, I thought it'd be interesting to decompose really what are the factors that you're trying to to figure out here, and specifically the the multiple that people are willing to pay for glamour versus value, and the underlying fundamental business changes that may may happen in between those two companies. Um, what do you, you guys have any initial thoughts at this point before I? try to drill even deeper into that i would just say that i i think that that osam have done a few good pieces and uh the latest letter also deals with this but basically value is doing what it has always done and uh to the extent that it's not been rewarded it's it's multiple expansion has not occurred there's been the reverse been some contraction in it whereas where traditionally what happens with the growth companies that they do see that very high growth in the earnings but they see a little bit of multiple contraction they've seen the expansion so it's just been that that is unusual maybe that is the brave new world i don't know but that is it's still unusual we don't have enough data to sort of say that the world i think has flipped but you know maybe you got to start thinking that that's a possibility i don't but you know got to start thinking for <laughs> for the look yeah bill so- what do you think Jake, what are what are you asking specifically? Are you saying like the underlying business risk? What would be some of the commonalities that we're betting on, or no, are you just saying like from a factor perspective? Kind of more of a factor. Like, so if you are, if you're buying value today, are you buying it because you believe that multiples will expand in value, or do you believe that growth multiples will contract? Uh, do you think that the business for whatever reason of glamour will maybe slow down a little bit because that it has been a really good year or a good decade for for growth companies their underlying businesses have done better than historically um or is it a matter of uh is it possible that the 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 multiples will come down for both glamour and value from here um you know these are i think actually pretty important things to untangle if you are going to be making a value basket type of bet yeah so i just off my like gut i would say that value is more likely to continue to perform like it has but glamour is likely to potentially hit a a hiccup i don't know if i hedged my words carefully enough but um specifically you know, with with SAS, um, I was talking. I had I went out with Scuttleburb this weekend, and we were talking about how in technology, the nature of technology is that there's a winner, and then a bunch of other companies sort of build their ecosystem around the winner. And right now, a lot of the SAS names are are priced as if they're all going to be the winner that everyone else comes around and by definition there can only be a few of those so that's why i always say if you really know what you're doing in that space it's probably a good space to play in but i think people are just going to get you know i I think a lot of people are going to end up not 
they're going to own something that they didn't think they were buying. So I, I have a feeling that there are pockets that people are going to get really crushed in. And I would think, generally speaking, value doesn't have the same stretch to it that sort of gives people that. Not the same stretch, but I, I do think that it is like a sad, it's it's upsetting to say it, but value is probably 50% rich to its long run mean, or maybe not quite 50%. It's, it might be 30% now, something like that. You know, mm-hmm. growth is multiples of where it should be. So growth can come back a lot. So, but it could easily be, it's not going to be a scenario like 2000 where the market collapses, the dot coms are down 80 or 90 or 95% and value is up. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's a 2007, 2009 type scenario either where value gets absolutely taken to the woodshed. I think it's somewhere in the middle where value is probably going to do a little bit better than the market, but it's still going to get hurt. Growth is, is that a get... is that a positive or negative expected outcome bet except today yes. on the value basket probably still uh it's hard so pick the time frame too like so yeah probably I've, i still think that there's positive i think the only place you can get positive absolute returns at the moment is in value even though I think in the interim, you know, with volatility in a crash, who knows what's going to happen? It can pro- it'll probably go down. But I think that everything else is priced uh, for perfection and must sort of come back to a long run mean, whereas I think value probably won't do that as much. But I still think, you know, realistically in a crash, it'll go, it'll go, it's going to go down. It's just it's not going to go down as much as the market. I think the SaaS names and a lot of those things are going to get absolutely cut to smithereens. How about fundamental-wise? Any reason to think that the kind of winner-take-all phenomenon that we've seen, or at least that's been, it seemed to have been the last 10 years, um, that maybe that will, you know, whether it's antitrust comes up more or whether it's uh, competition comes, uh, is there any reason to think that fundamentally speaking that a basket of the cheapest 10% might have might have better business results maybe like a lot of weak hands get forced out uh and maybe the maybe the more expensive stuff will have a reversion to the mean in business results as well yeah that's a good question i don't know i think there's so many influences that it's impossible to see what the impact is going to be other more expensive names taking business away from the cheaper names or are they taking funding away from the cheaper names i don't know yeah i don't have a good sense either i i would say that in a lot of the stuff that I have seen the deep value pitch on, my biggest concern is agency costs. And I brought this up last week, but I, I do think that, um, and Super Mugatu had a, a, or Dan had a good uh, point on Toby's recent podcast with him where he said he thought the agency costs were more aligned in some of these compounder type names relative to the deep value sort of like liquidation uh, slice at least, uh, which I thought was interesting. I I happen to agree with it, which is probably why I liked it. <laughs> so yeah. just just uh, what, nice what, what does that what does that mean bias. in practical terms? What does that mean? Does it mean that they are well, if, paid to sort of long, keep on growing? Well, if you're long GameStop right now, I am I am pretty sure that CEO part of his compensation is operating income growth. In my opinion, his entire compensation should be total shareholder return over the next three years. Because a lot of that is a cigar butt that you're hoping to get the money back from. I don't actually want him reinvesting if I'm buying today 
I don't want him to try to grow operating income, especially not on an absolute basis. I mean, maybe if you want to go per share or per store or something like that, fine. But like, I don't want this guy trying to think about how to grow the company. I don't, but that's me. Right. But I don't think a lot of deep value guys are like, Oh, how are we going to get, how are we going to turn GameStop into a compounder? Right. (laughs) So get the guy's incentives aligned with sort of your incentives. Right. With this, with the corporate strategy that you would like to see. That's right. Yeah. Well, I think it's a tough question because there are so many variables, whether it's technology, government interaction, um, investor sentiment. But I do think maybe a lot of times we don't think enough about, you know, which if we're going to win, why is it that we're going to be winning? Is it is it fundamental based? Is it multiple based? Uh, And I think a lot of times maybe we don't always strategize enough about those kind of things. I just wonder if the counterpart to that is sometimes it's, you know, Buffett clearly is smart enough to figure out macro, right? Well, if anybody is, he is. And he says, I don't do it because it's too... And maybe maybe he just says that and he actually does do it. I've got no idea. But it seems to me that it's so hard that you've got to get the sequence of things right and any single thing in a sequence that you get wrong invalidates yeah. the whole thesis. I would push back a little bit on that in just looking at his actions. And- you think that he's more macro? Well, I'm borrowing a billion dollars in euro denominated specifically. Um, that's kind of a macro bet to me. Uh, holding 130 billion of cash is a bit of a macro bet to me. Um, it, he, he's like gotten rid of all interest rate risk. Like he has no long duration interest rate risk, really. Like that's kind of a macro bet. Uh, I mean, his his actions telegraph a little bit of some macro thinking, I think. But aren't some of those ad hoc decisions that you can make on a case-by-case basis that you don't necessarily have to make a prediction you just sort of look at where you are in the cycle well i i mean isn't aren't you making a prediction though that what you're doing is going to work out better than if you didn't do that isn't that implicitly baked into the the decision but then you've got this i guess they're they're micro decisions though they're not sort of like some grand macro thesis there each one is its own even if it does reveal, you know, so he's interviewed. I agree with that. He was interviewed sometime this year. I saw this in a recent article where he said he thinks, or uh, sorry, it was earlier 2019. He said he thinks if you look at where interest rates are, stocks look really cheap. And then he was given credit for like the big run up in, in equities last year, which as yeah, we discussed he's been before. Yeah, that forever. Yeah. He, but he's, he always says that. He said that at the top in 2007. Yeah. But he's also implicitly relying on the equity risk premium to say that which as we know it doesn't work <laughs> uh yeah the fed model but basically. how could it be otherwise like this that's the bizarre thing about that particular model that i like the logic of it logically it must be the case because you your alternatives are stick it into cash or stick it into like some bonds or something like that or stick it into an operating business and if you're getting a better return sticking it in the operating business isn't that how you make the decision so how does that thing not work it just doesn't. Absolute return. The absolute yield on the on the equities is the better determinant of future returns than the relative return than the return relative to the interest rates. It it is surprising that it doesn't have contain more signal in that noise. Um, but 
I don't know. Maybe it's there's it's probably that it's such a confluence of factors that it just gets kind of washed out by so many other things. Whereas for whatever reason, valuation uh, be- becomes a stronger signal. Well, that's my thought is that you have the Fed there as well setting the interest rates, so they're sort of putting their finger on the on the scale yeah. a little bit, yeah. influencing the. So when you're looking at the relative attractiveness of one or the other, you've got to add in the fact that the interest rates aren't static and they're going all over the place too. Tinfoil hat alert. We gotta. Uh, that, I mean, that's 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 their job. I wasn't. That, there's nothing. There's yeah. nothing conspiracy theorists about that. <laughs> Did I you, think. I, I think Buffett does do a lot more macro thinking that he leads on. I just also think that he his brain does like automatic decision trees. And I think that when you get into macro, there's just so many permutations that he's sort of like, I, I, I don't think anyone can be involved in finance and not at least find macro like mental porn a little bit. I mean, it's fun to think about. And macro but guys sound think- smarter too. Oh man! Yeah, so and it's smart. super fun to put it together, and it's like, oh, this is going to happen, and it's in the world, and it's going to impact you. It's a lot. Let's talk about euro dollar bond volatility. That's right. Yeah, okay. and I just think Buffett's probably like, I could have that conversation with you, but I don't think it's worth the time <laughs> of doing it. I think it probably is a matter of an inversion, where he says, "Well, would I loan someone else these, you know, billion euros t- today at, at right. like a a quarter of a percent? No." All right, well, maybe I'm going to borrow them then instead because that might make sense. Well, there's also not much downside. I mean, if rates continue to go down, you just refi them at negative five. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then issue all the debt. Why is, why is macro so hard? Because interest rates can go negative, it turns out. There's no hard deck there. <laughs> That's right, because all of our assumptions actually may not be correct. But well, I don't, We want to treat it like it's a physics problem. And yeah. that there's like some kind of, you know, we can like you drop the ball and, and it's going to fall towards some center of mass. But it turns out it's probably not like physics at all. And, and anyone who comes at it from a first principles kind of physics standpoint is going to probably lead themselves into a into a blind alley. So how do you approach it? What's a better model than a physics model? I think that trying to figure out a specific industry and the strategies that the players are taking within the industry and getting some insight into that. Like the people that made a lot of money, uh, or well, not the only people, but people that did make a lot were people that followed Schwab, understood that Schwab makes less from trading fees than TD Ameritrade and Fidelity did. They cut all their fees, the stock sold off hard, and the people that were ready and there with the analysis that said like, no, this is long-term good for them because it's going to cripple their competitors. We're able to buy in a period when spooked people were selling the stock that didn't really understand. Um, so I, that's how I think the most, that's how I think you can make money. Uh, other than that, I, I really don't know unless you are doing some sort of factor analysis and you're betting on, the factor working, that makes sense to me, but I, I don't know any other way. I mean, I, I would have gotten every major macro call wrong over the last probably five years, at minimum. So what good is my thinking on it? Almost none. <laughs> you need to Costanza cons- c- yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Costanza I, I macro. Don't know. Contra bill. Yeah, well, I, I don't think I'm, I'm a moron or anything like that. I just, you know, I didn't 
I don't understand how the Fed works. I didn't. I did not foresee Trump getting elected, which would lead to deregulation. I didn't. I, you know, I just there's a lot of things I didn't see. It's so. not that you're a moron. It's that. <laughs> well, it's not that you're a moron. I'm sorry, I stopped there. <laughs> it's the not that. The going to fly <laughs> into me. <laughs> the, the point is that everybody basically thinks you know the same way like everybody can do the analysis to get to that point and then you, you it's like going to the parade and everybody's standing up on their toes like you, nobody's better off for everybody having done that analysis you have to do the analysis where you work out the consequence of everybody else doing that analysis but then what if yeah. they're also working that out and then they pick a different analysis to well, now you, now you oh, john maynard Keynes beauty oh yeah beauty contest, beauty contest. So then yeah. you're back to first principles, and you're only swinging at something that makes sense on a first principles basis. It's so recursive. It I is. don't know how you get out of that. Well, that's why I mean, Deep Valley hasn't worked for 10 years. About, they've <laughs> yeah. talked about before, like, tell me that 10 years ago, you could have said, we're going to be running these deficits, interest rates are going to be here, and no one cares. The cycle, and the dollar is strong. Zero like, okay. people picked that. Zero yeah. people picked that. Nobody expected that. No. So, you know, I don't know what good is I can't do that game. It does seem like one of those things, though, where if you could figure it out, the rest of the game gets very easy. You know, like you just know where all the tailwinds are. But guys figure that stuff out all the time and they're wrong. <laughs> well, they didn't figure it out. But, the, but they think that they did. See, that's the great yeah. danger. You, you, you basically that you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, and you figure out this is the consequence of all of these things happening, long gold, and then gold gets crushed or whatever. Like that, that's the that's the, the the devilment of it. That's what makes it so hard. Well, the problem is this: the system isn't static, right? So you may have figured it out for a day, but everything changes tomorrow. I mean, maybe not that quick, right? But you can't. It's like anything. I mean, it, it, everything. I don't know. It just, so it makes it takes it, you back it, to it micro. Is, it is the ultimate kind of narrative fallacy thing, though, where when you look back at it and hear the explanation, it seems so obvious that you could have predicted it. Thinking, you just you just slowed down a little bit there, Jake. I might have you to... did. You oh, entered the matrix. <laughs> yeah, they, I think they didn't want me to tell you what I was about yeah. to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I just said uh, it's. It, it suffers from that the narrative fallacy where you it seems very obvious in hindsight when you hear the story put together of what what happened that you it sucks you into thinking that you'll be able to figure it Predict out the next in the future time. yeah yeah just yeah. not the case it's an no, interesting topic fair. good questions good thoughts yeah. toby what's uh well, right. i was i was high coast oh, sorry, Bill, i know it felt like Bill no, was no, high coast, but i was high coast. No, so uh, I was talking with with somebody that listens to the podcast, and he was commenting on how weak my answer sounded to the why don't I run outside capital uh, question. And I felt like I probably owe it to the uh, the listening base. Hello, all, all. I think we're up to 10. So hello to all 10 of you. Um, but to be honest about it, right? And I, I, I thought about my answer, and I thought it was actually a pretty weak answer. And I guess that part of the issue is I'm still not 100% sure of the strategy that I want to take to the world. Like I'm really struggling with 
sort of where I came from in the beginning, which was the Buffett and Graham thing and the way that they look at the world to these why not buy better businesses at some at reasonable prices. Um, and the current what reasonable. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's this is an art, right? I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't know how you define that, but it's like any other asset, I guess. And then the behavioral um, problem that I have made myself more likely to encounter with the strategy that I'm running looking for mispricings is I actually think that like my who I am gets a little bit of FOMO if I'm doing work on a company that I think could be a good value I get worried that the market's going to realize it so quickly and I think it almost uh by a half point yeah well I mean that's I think I need to work on sort of thinking that way like who cares if it goes up a half point right but, or but whatever. Buy, buy a half point so what I'm saying is like yeah. have, have your just like sit down and work out a structure so having done this much work I'm allowed to buy this much this much work I'm allowed to buy this much and so on so like when you first see it seal the ratios looks really good read read a few 10ks and q's and whatever that that allows you to buy whatever half yeah. one and then as you keep on going in you're like actually there's more to this than I realized I'm allowed to take this position up until you get you know whatever your inception uh limit is three four five ten whatever 75 <laughs> percent all of it 125 percent no i think Manga that's style. a really good answer so working through some of that stuff before i have all that ironed out i mean i you know you got to have that i think you have to have that system before you take something to market i don't think those are the type of questions that you take something to market on un, unproven right and um, I think that what you said makes a lot of sense. It's actually what I did with that um, that company that I just wrote up, Ollie's, was I did some work on it, and it got to the. It has a lot of what I really like in a story. So you have the founder that died. You have that's uh, that's, what, that's what I always look forward to. Yeah, <laughs> well, look forward. That's, dead founder. I, I, to be fair, I I, I worded that improperly. <laughs> yeah. They missed on a quarter, sold off hard. The founder died. I think there's a lot of reasons that that weak hands would be selling right. the stock right now. As I I sort of had it written out on a piece of paper, right? And then as I started to pen the longer article and I started to actually write what do you have to believe for this to make sense and what's the actual upside downside? I got to the point where I said uh, somewhere in the article I said something like you need to have a 43% uh, chance of having the current management be able to run the business. Um, well, that's and that's, that's like sort of silly, but that's how the numbers that I was working with worked. And I asked myself, like, what makes me the person that's able to make that bet? And I don't have a good answer to that other than time. Um, so I, I don't know. It's just one of those things that... Um, that's funny. You could go through an analysis, any analysis, and you could, holding all the other... Uh, inputs uh, the same and you could figure out what probability each of the inputs that you have has to be to get I, I can see how you, I can understand how you've got to that point like I can see how what is the what does this whole thing turn on if I keep all of these other ones static for this one to succeed this thing working I think if you did that like that might almost make you that might almost paralyze you 
I know it's kind of terrifying to do, but I do think that like for that particular entity in my mind, the bet is, was this thing dependent on one guy? Can the current management execute the plan? And then I guess the second question is, can they get to their store count? But thus far, they've been able to execute their entire plan. So I'm not sure that the store count question really matters yet. Um, I don't know that that matters for another six years or so if they have proven it out. Now, there's a short thesis going around that might allege that they're doing fraudulent things with the inventory. That's sort of a whole nother. That's a whole nother basket of worms, right? But uh, for these purposes, assume it's not a fraud. Maybe well, that's since the new management came in. They, well, yeah, but they've only held one call and they haven't executed at all. Okay. I mean, because this is a perfect opportunity is- for them to clear that out. Blame it on the dead guy. <laughs> yeah, but that's right. big bath accounting time. That's what I did. Yeah. Did you uh, know he was a charismatic founder? Everybody loved him. Um, so we'll see. I, I don't know. It's an interesting setup, but it was one of those that I felt like I took a small position because I I felt like I had done the work that I needed to do, but then actually sitting down and writing. I was like, I don't know, maybe maybe this is an error of commission here, and one that's uh, an error that there are is no not errors of commission anymore. No, <laughs> the only error is not buying. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this, Bill. If you let's say that a hundred percent or a hundred is a is your perfect, like you know that you have the best process that you are capable of doing in the investing world of analyzing and you know controlling for biases, all those kinds of things. What number do you think you need? What threshold do you need uh, to get over to feel comfortable managing other people's money? Right. Because you're always you're theoretically always going to be learning and getting better. Right. And hopefully your process is getting better as well. But what what's kind of that minimum number in your head that you would need to get over to take outside money? I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I would need to definitely have. I need to have an answer as to what kind of companies am I going to target. That that I think is something that that people probably want to know. Mm-hmm. And two, I would need to uh, make sure that I had a process where I wasn't making early errors of commission because I think those are probably my biggest personal risk. So if I could have a system in place that sort of you know, maybe it's it's a guy spear type system where I say the day that I decide to buy, I'm not buying for a week, mm-hmm. right? Like because who cares? The countdown starts. Yeah, that's right. And and just sort of a a blockade that may be sufficient. Um, but you know I, what you I, need to cure yourself of that that little FOMO bug is just to watch prices go down every day in a grinding bear market where you buy and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe I bought already. And it just keeps grinding on you. That will that might cure you. Yeah. Well, I I do think hurt? I do think that this is late cycle FOMO, and I and it goes back to when I said earlier to you guys how many people have really managed through pain. You know, extended pain is uh, going to be a much different feeling for a lot of managers. Well, I've been out a deep there. value investor for a decade. <laughs> <laughs> I could write a thesis on it at this point. On pain. Well, you have. You Oh, on, the, on just the pain. I was going to say, you've written a fair amount of books on deep value. I buy something undervalued. It goes down further. It's still undervalued. And I got to sell it out because uh, there's other more cheaper stuff around. 
Yeah, well, for a while, everything I bought would go down a fair amount. After In a rising market. <laughs> yeah. And that's why people people ask, like, what's it like to be down 20 or 30 percent on a stock? And I <laughs> never had my go that well. Think, oh, that's that's Monday. <laughs> yeah, that's the first two weeks of ownership. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what happened to me on Ryanair. I mean, I bought Ryanair and that thing was just nobody wanted it. And then I just kept buying more, you know, which worked out. But uh, that one, I think I was right for the right reasons. Do you have a mailbag question, Bill? I've got two. Two mailbags. One, uh, I think this person could use our advice, and the answer can just be no, but I'm going to ask him or ask for him. It's uh, at Investing Chef. Uh, thinks Apple's stretched, wants to short it, and doesn't know how. Is there a simple strategy to short Apple into this strength? Buy a, buy a put. <laughs> buy a little put. That's the only thing you can do there. You're probably still paying a bunch in uh, Val, though. Yeah, in but Vegas. you know how much you're going to lose data rather yeah i don't i don't know i this is not this is not financial advice that's right if you have to express the view make sure that you know how much you're going to lose which is uh what buying a put achieves uh buy it so you got a year or so to run on it so it's not a short-term thing you know i don't know how much your portfolio but i you know i'd be not half a point or a point in something like that and uh, just know that you're probably going to be wrong because that's uh, the market tends to go up. My, I think for me, you know, every single one of those, anytime you want to try to win when something's going down, it requires a timing element to be right. And that, I believe, is incredibly difficult. So difficult. I think you can be, you can know probably when something is is overvalued and you can know even like fraudulent things you just don't know how long it's going to last and to win then you have to you have to get the timing right as well so i personally if you you don't if you like apple but you don't like apple's price i would just i would rather hold cash which i look at as a call option on it that has no expiration um, and buy it when you like it again, and instead of trying to win going down as well, but have to get the timing right. Yeah, and I I would say if you're going to play this game, which I don't think is a very smart game, uh, wait until momentum turns over on it because mm -hmm. I just think you're you're bound to get destroyed buying puts or e even selling call spreads. Uh, I just don't. Don't you think I, that the cost of the insurance though moves up also once the once kind of the cat's out of the bag and the momentum, right? And everybody's like, all right, well, let's go in the other way now. And I'm going to charge to to allow you to, to take definitely. the other side of that. Yeah, does. for sure. But I, I suspect that the the benefit from the delta that you pick up is bigger than the, the cost of the premium that you have to pay. I, I just, I think shorting strength like that is not a very smart strategy, especially if it's short term. You got two problems. It's a very good business, and it's got momentum at the moment. Even if the valuation is getting stretched, which you know, there's probably a few compounder guys around who can tell us how cheap it still is. But it's, and you know, it might it might still be. I'm being flippant there, but I, I don't know. I haven't done enough work on it. it. It's it's very very hard to short, particularly something like that. I mean, if, even shorting frauds is hard. Like they're definitionally trading way way over what they're worth, and there's no reason why, as David Einhorn says. You know, two times overvalued is silly, but three times overvalued is no, it's no, no more silly. It's still silly. Yeah. yeah. Ten times overvalued is still silly. 
I like what Dan said to you on your podcast where he he said we don't short frauds because by definition they have they're very good at being frauds, right? Like if you have a two billion dollar market cap and nothing, you're really, really good at being a fraud. Uh, I thought that was pretty insightful. Anyway, so that's that's question one. Uh, question two is from our buddy uh, at Paul H four two two four. Hope to see you at Berkshire again this year. Uh, he said, why do value groupies with long-term mindsets in their life all get attracted to value strategies which inherently are short-term, meaning less than two-year holds, and contradict a belief that equity ownership creates value over the long-term? I don't fully understand the question. What do you, what do you mean by short-term strategies? So I think what he's saying is if you are <laughs> playing a game where you're buying something cheap expecting the multiple to re-rate that's not the same game as owning equity for the long term and yeah. those those two are disconnected theoretically i think that's his question i think he's right yeah i think that's true uh i think there are different ways to express uh value and whether it's different time horizons different setups as far as you know business quality versus just pure asset amount and what you're willing to pay for at different thresholds a lot of different ways for it to make sense i think you just have to make sure that you understand which of those that you're doing which one appeals to you more uh, i think there are seasons for different ones i think we're in the middle of a more growthy compounder one the last 10 years um, i wouldn't be surprised if maybe the price to book as a as a signal maybe starts to work again um, oh my goodness how'd yeah. you do that you just said that out loud i think it was I, the best before like i saw before cliff asness uh shuffled off the mortal twitter coil he pointed out that price to book had been the best performed value metric for like nine months of last year huh. well and that's that makes sense like everything moves in cycles like i've i've been reading um Merger Masters, which was uh, Gabelli and Kate Welling's book about all these different guys that did merger ARB, uh, you know, mostly through the 80s when it was a hot period. And the smart ones realized that it got crowded, that the spreads were tightened up and you just couldn't make money at it anymore. And they, they started doing other things. And I think I think the flavors of value go through similar seasons and just knowing when it's your season and being having the conviction to go do it again when everyone else is kind of saying that that doesn't work anymore. Uh, I think that's a perfectly valid strategy if it makes sense to you. Yeah, this is not really answering the question, but I want to keep on going with what Jake said. Uh, I didn't answer the question. I get it. Jake at Economic. <laughs> uh, shout out to Jake. I know he listens to it. How are you, brother? He, uh, he pointed out that in 2007, 8, somewhere around that period, uh, the the growth strategies got cheap relative to value strategies. So value at for like a very brief period, there was actually more expensive than growth, which makes no sense. And as Jake uh, Farnham, Jake and I have talked about in the past, uh, there's a possibility that we're like momentum value guys because we sort of got on the value bandwagon after yeah, value had been time. working really well, which is the mm -hmm. wrong time to do it. That means that I think that at some stage it'll make sense to again to become a growth investor. I don't think that now is the time to be a growth investor. I think you want to be a value guy. When I say growth, I'm, I'm using that's my shorthand for saying buying better companies, growing at a higher rate, still paying a sensible price for them. I don't think that's now, but I do think that there 
this value cycle is going to play out more. It's going to be a better decade for value, I think, than it is going to be a decade for growth. Maybe in about a decade, you want to be moving up the... You want to be buying those, yeah, buying those compounders at lower prices. I'm probably going to get hate mail for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, I sometimes wonder about the willingness to pay kind of whatever multiple for a great business today. If it doesn't kind of remind me of the dot-com time frame where you could really make the argument that a lot of those companies were, they had a better business model. They had a better mousetrap. They were going to have lower costs because they didn't have as much brick and mortar. Like there were a lot of really logical things that you could be saying why you should pay up for this. Like the world kind of had changed. It was just going to take longer. And I can't help but wonder if sometimes now the multiples being paid, we're not kind of replaying that same thing where, yeah, you're right and you're smart. However, the price that you're paying basically erodes all of that intelligence right. that you you have on this decision. Well, I know who's getting the insults this week. <laughs> compound Town, send them to Jake. I'll take them. I mean, you guys are, listen, it's going to take you down like, to Compound Town and Compound Town. and I are long hiko, everyone. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Do you agree with that or not? I mean, are you guys, do you guys yeah. think I'm an idiot and I'm way no. off base? You, no, I think on. you're totally right. I mean, that's the whole question. It's the whole fucking horse thing that Charlie Munger always says, right? Like, yes, it's the best horse. The question's the odds offered. And, you know, it, you can't look at a two or three, probably a five-year period's enough. I don't know. But you can't look at a short-term horizon and say this is the answer I do think that where I have erred, so why why have I prayed at that altar? One is my own version of hyperbolic discounting, uh, which is being so worried that the multiple is going to re-rate hard on me right away. Up or down? That, uh, down is why I have historically avoided the, the sexier companies. Um, two has been a real concern about not being able to predict the future. I'm starting to think that that is a valid concern, but also maybe I am underweighting my ability to observe the present a little bit. Um, what a tension and, that is, too, when you when you really think about it to try to to untangle. Yeah, I mean it's it's tough. Like I I if I just put this in a real estate context. I don't want to be a slumlord buying slums cheap. That's not really the the game I want to play. I also don't really want to own class A real estate where pension funds and all these endowments are going to pay whatever just to own that building. So I think probably where my sweet spot is, is the financial equivalent of class B real estate that has some sort of a scuttle blurb. I'm throwing out his name a ton, but like he said it to me in a way that I made a lot of sense. We were talking about small caps versus large caps. And he said, I think that's the wrong mentality because there's sharks all over small cap world. He's like, I like to think about it as the proportion of dumb money to float. And that I thought was really, really smart because that's where I think I want to play where there are scenarios where retail or some hot money gets scared but the business is pretty good and I can sort of provide the liquidity at that time. That that would be where I think I'm going with this. But historically, it's been a fear of multiple re-rating and uh, a lack of confidence in predicting the future. So he's saying that, that the larger cap space is actually more inefficient than 
smaller cap space effectively? Yeah, I don't know that he would say large cap necessarily, but um, what, mid you know, so an example of something that I think he would be comfortable with me quoting is he said, like, there's a lot of people that are in trade desk today that don't understand what they really own. Right. And that could be a scenario where you get a short term move when people are paying so much for the equity something that really doesn't impact the business could cause a huge sell-off i think is is sort of what he's thinking so but i like that way of thinking of things so that is an interesting multiple uh or ratio i should say yeah because you look at some do of they the publish that on like morningstar or something like that <laughs> uh, they should dumb but money small cap names like I, i'm sorry you know uh matt clarkin that guy that writes clark street value that guy's one of the smartest investors I've ever met. I mean, he's every time I talk to him, I think he's the smartest guy in the room. I don't want to play a game against him. Uh, so, you know, uh, and he he messes around in short, you know, small cap special situation stuff. There's a lot of sharp money in that space. And I think a lot of people do a, a mental shortcut where they say it's small. Therefore, there's a lot of dumb money. I, I don't think that that's true at all. Hmm. So, it's an anyway. interesting question. I think we're coming up on time, fellas. If uh, if folks are looking to get in contact with you, how do they do that? Jake? Uh, I'm on the hate mail this week. Yeah, send all your hate mail to <laughs> just I'm probably just due. Tag, send it tag to me. Your, your hate tweets. You can tag me and I'll I'll cry and pretend that I've that it doesn't bother me. And uh <laughs> He's at Farnham Jake One on the Twitter machine. I'm at Bill Brewster S C G. And I am Greenbacked, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. Thanks very much for listening, folks. Uh, it's a lot of fun, as always. Uh, we'll catch you next week. See you next week. Take care, folks.